You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 186. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, son, hey, son! Oh, well. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just tell our listeners that we have tried to have all three of us on the show, or at least the, the, the intro part of the show, but uh, since Yarana is on the other part of end of the planet, oh, <laughs> it, it has no end. Although, <laughs> if it's a flat Earth, then it does have one. Ne- never mind. So, so, she's very far away. Yes. But while we were at the European Skeptics Congress in Ghent, or Ghent, or uh, we've, we've heard a couple of different versions of that. Uh, anyway, that's where the European Skeptics Congress took place, and we tried. Yeah, Sunday morning, <laughs> we had a very early call for us, a late call for her, where we tried to record an intro. Didn't work so well, did it, Anders? <laughs> and it wasn't technical, actually. We... It turns out that it, we didn't even realize how badly it went yeah. until you started the editing part. I tried to edit it. It wasn't very good. Um, we were not... or I, I, must, I should take the blame. <laughs> Anders was very sensible. He went to bed very early. Uh, at least that's what he's telling me. And But I went out and I didn't arrive until very early morning. And then we started to record just two hours after that, I believe. And <laughs> I it wasn't my proudest moment. I wasn't a very good performance. So it became very, what's the word? giggly and we were just <laughs> fooling around and we forgot to to explain a few things and when i tried to edit it yesterday i realized this is totally unusable but uh, for your listening pleasure we will include a few, uh, some snippets out of that recording in this episode's outtakes and i hope you will enjoy it we had <laughs> a lovely time and i think you can tell <laughs> And yeah, let's just say that you had a terrible headache. <laughs> you had these <laughs> had fine red well. pills that actually took that yeah, away. They, yeah, they were they were pink actually. Pink so, pills. Uh, even even an extra placebo came with the pills. So uh, I, I I believe it it had a very nice and positive effect on you very soon after you took it, right? I, I, yes, absolutely. I was yeah. a much nicer mm. guy a little later. but yeah, yeah, but then we were listening to, to talks uh, yes. on the last day of, the, of the, the Congress. Well, one thing is perfect. I mean, it's a good thing with that recording that we only managed to record audio. <laughs> and not scents, not smells, and like that, like that. You know, when you hear, feel that very strong smell of acetaldehyde. <laughs> oh, I, oh. Uh, now break. I feel now I feel even worse. But uh, <laughs> no, the, no, just, no, no, that's normal. That's normal. That's yeah. normal. Just yeah, like we've just... said also in earlier episodes, the thing was that Andras and I were sharing a room as well. So, so we, I was in my pajamas actually when we <laughs> recorded. So, yeah. so very good. It wasn't uh, video, and it was your birthday. <laughs> it was my birthday. That's my excuse yes, from now was. on. I oh, forget about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was yeah, my yeah. birthday. Yeah, happy me. Yeah, if someone hasn't has missed it, uh, you can still check out the the, the photo that I posted on Facebook. And, oh, uh, it's that's on our correct. Facebook page. <laughs> correct. Correct. Pontus in his pajamas. Oh, yes. Uh, 
<laughs> very intimate. A very, very intimate thing. Maybe we should move on to more serious topics. <laughs> what do you say, Andras? <laughs> I think. Okay. So yeah. uh, since it, we are so excited to have a, a very nice lineup of, of interviews that we recorded at the Congress in the next, probably the next two episodes but uh we'll we'll yeah, see how this it goes because yeah, we should probably put in a regular episode as well with the regular segments as well yeah, be- yeah, between right. the two so uh, it might not happen next week that the last batch gets released but a, a week after that but this week we tend to release the first batch of the interviews and I have to say that we are planning to interview some people whom we met at the Congress, but we decided that we wanted longer interviews with them. So stay tuned because uh, a couple of very interesting interviews are to be expected. Yep, very good, very good. Including someone mm-hmm. that we didn't meet at the Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I did meet him yesterday because I just got home from the UK. Uh, after the Congress, I decided to go to the UK because that's where the two of my sisters still live. Who knows what what's going to happen to them after Brexit, though, which is a, a whole new topic. The last couple oh. of days have been absolutely hectic with regards to yeah, yeah, yeah. As we are recording wow. this, I know there are debates in the British Parliament. Yes. You will read about that in the papers tomorrow, so... Exactly. Let's not go into that. No, I, we have no idea what's going to happen, so I, uh, there's no point going into that. But I went to see my sisters, and not long after that, I went to London last night to see Ricky Gervais and Richard Dawkins in conversation. Ooh. And that was in Troxy, and uh, wow, it was a really great event. Let me just say something about this. Me traveling around all the time... I don't have much time to attend events like that. Mm. In order to, for me to be able to go to the European Skeptics Congress and Chick Up Fest the next week, I had to book that time because we are still in the middle of the tourism season, right? Mm. So when I saw it online that Ricky Gervais is getting the Richard Dawkins Award and will be a conversation with the two of them, hosted by Richard Wiseman... Mm-hmm. <laughs> no other i decided that okay i'll i'll just go for it i know i will be there anyway so it's just a couple of days before my next tour so what the heck i'm gonna go mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i posted it on facebook that i am actually going and whoever puts me up for that night uh, around the area in london preferably can come with me because i've got two tickets oh good and a friend of mine uh, did actually jump on the opportunity and uh, we enjoyed it very much however I have to mention here that when I posted it on Facebook, I got a couple of very, very bad comments. I mean, they were very judgmental about my choice of attending an event with Ricky Gervais and Richard Dawkins. And the reason for that was that they did not condemn Laura Krauss mm. for the things that he's accused of. I mean... I haven't done my research. I have no idea what Lawrence Krauss has done. I have heard of that allegation. I don't know what's real about it and what's not. I'm not questioning it, and I'm, but I'm not judging either. But, but I just want to interject. I think it is uh, pretty clear that he did behave very badly. I've heard it from several reliable sources. But yes, go on. Yes. However, even if that is the case... 
And if he did that, then it's terrible. He, he should not be welcome in certain circles. However, if someone decides not to condemn him publicly for that, in my opinion, it doesn't make that person a terrible misogynist or a supporter of whatever Lawrence Krauss has done with his sexual misconduct. Hmm. I mean, if it's not... Uh, discussed in public by either Richard Dawkins or uh, Rick Gervais, I don't see it absolutely necessary for them to openly condemn it, because if it's absolutely off-topic, I don't see the point. However, making one more jump, another step, it's a huge step, of finding me unacceptable and my behavior of posting that event on Facebook, unacceptable, because that is a clear sign to some people that I align with everything that Lawrence Krauss has ever, ever done. That is just bullshit. That is just <laughs> absolutely yeah. over the top. And I wouldn't expect that to happen with skeptics. Yeah. No, I, I, I saw that post that you... And I, I don't agree with that at all. I can just say that Richard Dawkins has stirred up a lot of emotions on his own by doing, especially a couple of years ago, he has been using Twitter in a way which was ill-advised, and he, <laughs> yes. he, yeah, and he, no, he's. I wouldn't put it like that. He, he actually have had some tweets that were really, really bad. And if you then connect that with that, he is acquainted with Lawrence Krauss, and he didn't speak up against Lawrence Krauss when that happened. Yeah, I can understand why you don't like Richard Dawkins, but still. Um. I'm not a fan of Richard Dawkins. I'm a great fan of his work, especially everything that he's written prior to The God Delusion. I have my issues with The God Delusion, but it was refreshing to read it. And I agree that he's uh, made a couple of very stupid... I would I would go as far as to say that he's, he, he's made some very stupid comments on Twitter. Mm. He tweeted some unsubstantiated things on Twitter that, that shouldn't have been done. But that's one thing. The other thing that I was attacked for is that I'm I'm enthusiastic about an event involving someone who's transphobic, and I had no idea what they were referring to. Turns out that Ricky Gervais made a couple of comments on of some some of his gigs about uh, Kathleen Jenner, mm. who used to be Bruce Jenner, mm. and uh, I think it just shows very clearly how. Some people in the skeptic movement have this holier-than-thou attitude and uh, that they want to tell everyone uh, what is moral and what is immoral. And I just don't subscribe to that. I, I, I don't want to accept that because it's just going too far. Someone did something. If he really did it, it's terrible. I'm referring to Lawrence Krauss. Someone forgot to condemn it and sometimes even appeared together with Lawrence Krauss. Now, that is questionable. I agree. But then, uh, me coming out with a Facebook post advertising that I'm going to that event, and they condemn me for that, that is just ridiculous. It's just an overreaction. It's a massive overreaction. So, sorry, sorry that I came out with this rant, but I just had to let it off my chest. Okay, but... Not to derail this whole episode, which is uh, about much more exciting things. First of all, I don't care. I 
I enjoyed last night very much, where Ricky Gervais and Richard Dawkins in conversation, they touched on a couple of very important things that skeptics and atheists needs, need to discuss. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that I met a lot of fellow skeptics and friends there that we nice. know from other skeptical events. You know what? Yeah, I know it's uh, it's an argument from popularity, but if hmm. it was a good enough event for them, you know what? It's a good enough event for me, and I was really enthusiastic about it. All right. Moving on. Moving on. We were enthusiastic about uh, the European Skeptics Congress as well, so I think we should turn our attention to those interviews that we recorded there. I believe the first one will be the one with uh, Professor Edzard Ernst. Exactly. That That is absolutely correct, and he will talk about his new book. But we'll let him speak about the book. It was a good interview. He's a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, actually. We interviewed him on the on the show a couple of years ago, but he insisted that I would, he would do it through a landline phone. So it was a little bit <laughs> difficult to make the, the technology work. But this time we have had him in person. We later on had the opportunity to have lunch with him and to yeah. socialize with him. And also, you were not at the the gala dinner at the Saturday night, but I was, and I talked to him there as well. He is a really a lovely guy, but, uh, well, I shouldn't talk about that. You should listen to him himself. So here we are at the 18th European Skeptics Congress, where... We uh, had that chance to meet up with uh, Professor Edzard Ernst, who just recently came out with a new book. So, first of all, good to see you. Hi, hi, good to see you too. In person. We had our interview recorded a couple of years ago, not too long after we we started this podcast. And we met in person at the European Skeptics Congress back in 2015, but it was a long, long time ago. So, good to see you again. So your new book's title is Alternative Medicine, A Critical Assessment of 150 Modalities. So do we, should we um, approach this book as a kind of a handbook for the criticism of alternative medicine or how should we look at it? Well, I, I think the, the book is meant as a, as a resource, really. Uh, nobody wants to know about 150 modalities. To read 150 modalities in sequence is really very hypnotic. So if if you're an insomniac, it might put you to sleep. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, it's it's not that type of book that you that you want to have on your bedside table and, and read. Except for the first part. The first part is six chapters where I explain everything around alternative medicine, the issues, the 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 pitfalls, the fallacies and so forth, uh, but the main part are the 150 modalities. I call it modalities because it's not just therapies, it's also diagnostic techniques, which I think are much under-investigated, and, and most people don't even know that alternative practitioners use diagnostic techniques that are not used in conventional medicine. The concept is basically on one page, more or less, uh, to deal with one modalities. And the way I do it, I tell a little bit about the background, uh, obviously cover the most important issues like efficacy and safety, costs, plausibility, 
risk-benefit ratio. Uh, and this is done in a non-standardized fashion because I felt that if I standardize that, uh, it becomes really very boring. At the end, I pull it together in a standardized table, so everything is evaluated according to the same type of table. If you really have no time at all, you can just with a glance look at that table and you know what this modality is about. People who know me think that this is an exercise in debunking alternative therapy, which is not true. Uh, there are quite a, quite a lot of treatments which come out with a positive uh, risk-benefit ratio. So uh, I might even annoy some skeptics with that book. Um, but all I'm doing is providing the evidence. For those who want to look a bit deeper, I also provide the references to the uh, systematic reviews. If, if possible, I base my evidence on, on rigorous systematic reviews. Often that is not possible, so then I have to go lower in the evidence uh, uh, hierarchy. That's basically it. So on your own blog, you were very modest that, that you said that if you don't want to buy it, just try to persuade your local library to have it. This was the first moment that I thought that, oh, it might be a good resource for skeptics. But do you recommend it for those who would like to use it as an educational material? So if, if, if people try to educate people into the field of critical thinking with regards to so-called alternative medicine scam as you like to use it yeah i've i've already had feedback from from people who who uh, use it in in that way and say great now i i can uh, in a very concise manner show how you think critically about acupuncture about homeopathy and and about 148 other modalities but Actually, that, that would be a side effect, a very welcome side effect. My, my other books are m much more aimed at stimulating critical thinking. I have published a book uh, which is called SCAM, so-called Alternative Medicine, w which lends itself to exactly that purpose. And this Sunday, f 1st of uh, September, I have the deadline to deliver the manuscript to the publisher for a book that is called don't believe what you think and that is precisely on on that topic there i focus directly on education for uh, critical thinking okay so this one that you just recently published is uh, more like um, an encyclopedia of the different modalities like a reference correct uh, uh, and and such reference books existed before uh, not least by myself but yep. <laughs> uh, what, what is new is that it is extremely concise, that it is extremely comprehensive. 150 modalities are not often dealt with, that it is critical. Uh, when you look at the, the vast majority of, of the books that uh, aim to inf inform in that way, they are uh, uncritical, non-critical, even promotional in, in many cases. And what is important is for the layperson. My previous books that were resource books, like the Oxford Handbook in Complementary Alternative Medicine, they were written for healthcare professionals. So we could use all the technical languages, so, so forth. This book abstains from technical language simply because it's for lay people. We, I want to reach the lay person with that book. 
Um, so you just said that uh, you are handing in the manuscript for the next book. When is it expected to be out? I, I, I think probably sp uh, spring next year. So uh, normally it takes the publisher about half a year. It probably says in my contract when, when exactly they're going to publish it, but I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But until then, we still have a myriad of your books that, that we can use as reference books. And uh, for those who are not familiar with them, on one of your books, you even give a story of your life from being a practitioner to an ardent critic of the different modalities of alternative medicine. However, until your next book is out, there are still those and the, the latest, which is Alternative Medicine, a Critical Assessment of 150 Modalities. Professor Edzidernst, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. And uh, take care. Uh, wish you good health uh, for being able to write a lot more books and see you next time. Yes, one, one book uh, per year uh, and, until I drop dead. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> Dozens of books, please. <laughs> Thank you. I do my best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. We shouldn't forget to mention that uh, Edzard gave a very interesting talk as well at the European Skeptics Congress. And I think, at, uh, especially towards the end of his talk, he summed it up pretty well. I mean, what us skeptics need to focus on and, and how we need to move forward. And uh, it gave me a certain a sense of... Uh, of positivity if if i can say so in a skeptical mm -hmm. podcast so <laughs> it was <laughs> yes. and it, uh, definitely some optimism was coming through that talk and i really appreciated that and i i hope that the the talks will be up on youtube on the youtube channel of the european skeptics congress as soon as possible so that we can share it with, uh, with everyone yeah and uh, we also recorded an interview with uh, Christina Moore, who is from Switzerland, and she gave us a little bit of an insight into her fascinating piece of research involving magicians and mentalists and how they can be used to assess and try to develop critical thinking skills and uh, the connection between critical thinking and uh, how we perceive the tricks and acts of these mentalists and, and magicians. It was fascinating to see the results. So let's hear what she has to say about that. We are at the 18th European Skeptics Congress in Ghent, and uh, here with us is Christine Moore, all the way from uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. This morning she gave a very interesting talk titled When Using Magicians to Study How Paranormal Beliefs Come About. So, first of all, welcome to the show. And, Thank you. Um, so, what was the basis of your research that you showed us and you shared with uh, the audience? Uh, the beginning was that I, when I started my PhD, my future PhD supervisor had asked me you know, if I would uh, contribute to a project he had ongoing and he said it would be about paranormal belief and I said, yeah, that would be exciting, yeah, please can I, can I partake? So this is how I came in. It was not that I had in a priori uh, strong interest in paranormal belief because first of all, I've never been a very you know in some you know 15 16 you try a little bit around and stuff but I've never been somebody who was very 
actively interested in it or convinced by it, but I always was fascinated by these phenomena and by people who believe in it. What what you outlined in your talk was research that uh, used magicians and mentalists to find out how people can be deceived and and, and what they believe and uh, how gullible they are. And there were some fascinating results in that. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was based that uh, a lot of my study was correlational, so I could not understand really what is at the cause of paranormal beliefs are like certain cognitive biases like reasoning biases or pallidolia we had it today also presented by somebody else so easily seeing a, a pattern in noise or seeing faces in clouds or yeah. seeing other objects in the arrangement of just random objects or in in a trunk of a tree so whatever type of cognitive biases you could correlate with uh, paranormal beliefs but that would not tell me in any way if these cognitive biases lead to the paranormal beliefs or if paranormal beliefs because you think in a certain way about the paranormal or other uh, belief uh, containing topics or belief related topics that they would lead to a certain way of perceiving the world or thinking about the world and uh, I was in this amazing uh, Bristolian pub. I must admit, I like to go to the pub. And uh, <laughs> they had Peter Clifford, hello Peter, performing close-up magic on a regular basis every week. And uh, why we went there first to see the magician over a longer period of time, I got more drawn to the audience, just seeing how they reacted to the magician. And that really some people definitely wanted to believe there is something paranormal or supernatural going on and I thought like wow this could be a really really uh, fascinating and also helpful paradigm to understand the causality of um, paranormal beliefs so we started uh, I started to team up with a, with a magician who is also a scientist so that we we can work together to develop uh, good paradigms which then I found in Gustav Kuhn who is at Goldsmiths University in London and he is a scientist psychologist interested in vision and attention and did already studies on misdirection which is very key and fundamental to magicians and he's also semi-professional magicians so we started to run a whole research program where we work with uh, magic performances that are uh, at the core so we can basically have magic performances sometimes more psychic so more of a paranormal nature or more mentalism so more of a pseudo scientific psychological nature and that allows us to see in which way variables that we are interested in from the viewpoint of psychology in which way they change or if they increase or if they predict uh, paranormal beliefs so we have suddenly a really quite nice experimental paradigm we can use in a classroom we can use in a laboratory we can measure uh, bodily reactions we can uh, make them do tasks before and after and see in which way task performance changes i mean imagine you see a very convincing performance and we know that people who believe in the paranormal have a tendency to not appreciate uh, chance so much so they see more likely meaning in every random event that happens in their life so uh, we could measure for instance chance uh, estimation before and after is it because you experience such an event you would afterwards also be more likely to change your probability of what you consider to be a, a, a chance level for instance what what were the the most surprising results that your research showed 
the emotional reaction I mentioned that uh, this morning in the talk, um, we felt if we show such a paranormal performance, uh, which was a medium taking contact with a dead person, and we did not, when we presented the study, that this would be a fake presentation or it would be a true presentation. We left it up basically to the audience or to the observer to decide and we asked them afterwards also how they felt about it. So personally we felt okay we showed that at the university in the classroom so hey they are in, a, in an environment of knowledge of, of critical thinking and so on and we thought oh most of them will say come on go home with your funny performance uh, and the opposite was true. I mean it was an amazing uh, huge proportion of the people who were happy to believe what they are seeing. I mean, it's happening in front of their eyes. So I can't blame them. I just have felt potentially the context we are giving makes them more critical. But talking to people afterwards, and that was probably the most stunning for me, was they felt because it's at university, it makes it more credible. So if we would have felt this is kind of something completely fraudulent, we would not expose it to them. So because we show it, it becomes some kind of credibility. And that was for me quite shocking, I have to say. What do you think it is that draws people to to believe in the paranormal and to want to believe in that? Because it's a lot about you want to believe in something. Yeah, and uh, I have to say that relates probably also to another part that you allured to, and that was the emotional reaction. I mean, I showed this morning that people have kind of mixed emotions. They are on the one hand really excited about it and on the other hand anxious about it or even repelled by it or, you know, feel it's inappropriate to to show such things and if we think about it I'm, I'm starting to read into it because I'm, I'm quite interested in the topic as well is these ambivalent emotions you have it with horror movies as well so I try currently to make a link to the attraction towards horror movie why would you why would you voluntarily watch aliens coming or you know being a ghost there and killing people and having all the time this tension and yet people enjoy it I personally don't enjoy it at all but there are a huge proportion otherwise there would not be such a big film business about doing horror movies there's one after the other coming out and there is an attraction to it and I think it's the same type of um, psychologists might call, call it also cognitive dissonance or affective dissonance. So you you are in between two different emotional and cognitive states. You know it's not true, but at the other hand, you see it right in front of your eyes. And this is in a movie as well. You know it's a horror movie. It's not true, and yet you are getting completely into it, and probably also the arousal of it. Uh, you know that that some people feel um, really attracted by it. I I can't at the moment see another easy analogy, and it's completely hypothetical yet, but I start uh, seriously to read into it. So are you going to uh, conduct some oh, yes. uh, research into oh, that? Yes. Oh, oh, yes. I can't wait to see those results because uh, I have the same thing that I, I'm drawn to uh, movies. I'm not, not necessarily horror movies, but, but for example, I love ghost stories. All right. I don't believe in ghosts, <laughs> but when I see them on film, I find them fascinating and I love them. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying them You immensely. think they could be friends? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think we can all relate to that. I think you're, yeah, you're quite yeah. right in, in my... I'm speculating too, of course, and yeah. I'm not even the researcher, but we like emotions. Yeah, yeah, we, and, even yeah. Bad Unce- ones. and uncertain times, <laughs> and I think this, this ambivalence, there's something 
in ambivalence that I feel is attractive to people, mm -hmm. even if part of that ambivalence is negative. Mm -hmm. But I, I have to say this came now through the studies that I feel always we need to go further in this direction and that's the direction I will take. It's really great. So um, I, I hope you don't mind us uh, contacting you or if you have results out, um, you, you could contact us and yes, uh, we, would, sure. we would be more than happy sure. to have you back and, uh, and talk about that because it's obviously very important, um, all that, to be known to skeptics as well because oh, sure. it, yeah. it makes yeah. us understand very, yeah. a lot more about how humans work how human the human mind and emotions operate and how we can uh, connect to all that yeah sure and, and where if people want who listen to the podcast want to go and follow your work where, where can they go is it a website or um yeah i mean we researchers normally all has have our website uh, so if you type in christine moore psychology and lausanne you normally drop on my personal University right. webpage. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll find a link and we'll put it in the show. Yeah, notes that would be lovely. Episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Christina Mo, uh, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the weekend. I will. Here at thank the you European very Skeptics much. Congress. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Yes, that was very fascinating uh, to talk to Christina Moore and, and all the link to paranormal beliefs and how you can learn about that from how people react to magicians. So we have one more interview for this episode. And of course, it is about vaccination because that's what we talk about all the time. And yes. measles. And we have one hero in Europe and he, we have awarded him the Really Right Award as well. His name is Uvidiu Kovaciu. And he is from Romania, where they have mm -hmm. extremely big problems with measles epidemics. And we got, uh, we actually locked him into our hotel uh, room and we didn't <laughs> let him out until we, he told us all about the anti-vaccination movement and also some very exciting developments that are coming this uh, fall. And he will be talking to people on a worldwide basis to be, together with a lot of other experts to see if we can make a difference when it comes to beating the anti-vaxxers. I mean, not literally. No, yeah. not literally, no. However, he could really, really he's a be big a couple guy. of them. He's the nicest guy uh, you'd ever he met. Is, he's a lovely yeah. guy, but he's really big. <laughs> Pontus is a tall man, uh, but I think Ovidio is at least 10, 15 centimeters taller than you. I don't know. but it, So it, I felt like I felt like a, like a dwarf. <laughs> not to make too much of a thing of this, but it, not, not that many people that I need to look up to. But I'm looking up to Ovidio in more than one way. That's right, that's right. And so do I. Okay, let's listen to him. So, we're here at the European Skeptics Congress in Ghent, or is it Ghent? And uh, we have our Ovidio Cavaccio. Do I pronounce that roughly? It's correct? okay. It's yeah, fine. it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From Romania and uh, very, very active uh, in combating the anti-vaxxers. Yes. They're doing a great job. We actually awarded you a really right award uh, at one point for that, and you I continue remember. to do that. Yeah. And you were one of the speakers today. So uh, can you tell a little bit about what your speech was about? Sure. Thank you for the interview as well. Um, so my, my talk was about the tactics of the anti-vaccine movement, and I tried to show how the anti-vaccine movement works in terms of how they approach, uh, how they grow, basically. And once they grow, uh, how they defend themselves against uh, any 
attempts to regulate the vaccine question basically from various states. In terms of summarizing the talk, the strategy, I call it SICK, so that's S-I-C-C. Basically, uh, it starts off with subverting. This means gaining trust within a group, group of parents, a group of online uh, people, and then slowly pushing them into anti-vax territory by uh, being um, vocal about it. And then uh, it's influencing, influencing, finding the people who might get your message and pushing forward to other audiences, uh, growing it out. And then it's a matter of confronting and uh, fighting against any legislation, because once, let's say, influencers come out, the, the state will realize it has an issue, sometimes, mm. most cases, uh, and will look at the question of how do we regulate vaccination closely, and that means you need to be there as an anti-vax uh, organization to push back against any regulations. Say, no, 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 everything is fine. Could you stop vaccinating anyone? <laughs> um, and of course, the last piece of the strategy is, is making sure you put some conspiracy on it, uh, a spin on, on the vaccines, pushing the story of um, the someone who wants you dead, the big pharma companies which just want to profit, that vaccines are going to kill someone. And uh, that's the to make a very nice cake and put the conspiracy on top. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you, you've got a lot of experience with uh, the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Uh, do you see an actual structured strate strategic thinking behind uh, all their activities? Are there any organizations that actually apply those principles or it's more along the lines of just following their instincts so what i mentioned previously was how i noticed they work okay. uh, across the internet basically but also within uh within my country with the political organization and i've seen it work just as well in other countries especially in the us which is now which had over this year a strong debate on vaccines in multiple states Uh, once the uh, measles epidemic uh, reached some new levels for for the U.S. Uh, and the anti-vaccine organizations, usually the same people, but let's say let's focus on New York. The New York story is very fresh. So in New York, there were multiple protests against attempts to legislate. Uh, there, at one point, the I'm not sure what he's called, the regulator of the New York state, said that uh, kids that are not vaccinated should not go out in public. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration as a as a regulatory body, but they did say that. That story got increasingly crazier uh, as anti-vaccine anti organizations started saying that they are discriminated against. And because the initial outbreak in the U.S. started in a Jewish community, Every other anti-vaxxer in the country started wearing a Jewish-style star. Oh boy. Where, you know, Europe has a long history with that. The Auschwitz Museum actually mentioned them, saying that this is... No, <laughs> please don't <laughs> yeah, do that. Please don't do that, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I had a had the honor of translating a, a post from a professor, I think, of Jewish studies in the U.S. that said the fact that anti-vaxxers are using the, the star as a symbol to identify themselves is historically wrong in the sense of it's so wrong, it's, it's, it should be mentioned in history books, because Nazis were not providing vaccines to Jewish populations. They were actually ignoring their health needs 
on purpose in ghettos specifically there was an entire story she, she mentioned i have the article so attaching yourself to this idea is highly insulting to to the jewish community and to everyone who can see the the association so the uh movement there was very strong pushing back giving this sort of shock images as well and uh it's it was part of the the confront piece and they seem to work similarly across the countries not because they're organized federally or internationally so much as in they make it work at a local level. But to answer your question, there is an organization that is called the European Forum for Vaccine Vigilance, EFV, I think it's called, which actually monitors the status of vaccine legislation in all the EU countries. And um, they, I mean, they, they also tell people how to get around the legislation if it's too much, so if it's a bit too, too strong. So, so you mentioned different legislations uh, in Europe, and you talked about that in your speech today, that there's not one solution. We had this debate among ourselves, uh, I think a year ago, whether vaccination should be mandatory or not. And I don't think we really agreed. We had two different positions. Uh, tell us about that, because you, sure. may have, you may have the solution to our problem, why we didn't no, the, agree. No, the, the solution is more complex than it looks. The Sabin Vaccine Institute did a report focusing on the European countries and the legislation status. And there's like five levels of uh, vaccination legislation from vaccination is recommended, but if you don't vaccinate, nothing's going to happen, to we mandate vaccination, and if you don't vaccinate, we're going to follow up and ask you questions and there will be consequences. There's a spectrum between these two. There's like five steps that they categorized, and countries within the EU fall somewhere on, on these lines. UK, Finland, I think Nordic countries fall on the recommended scale as well as Romania. And within Eastern Europe, there are some countries which have mandatory vaccines like Bulgaria, Hungary, I think the Baltics as well, Moldova as well for school admittance. So there's various scenarios in terms of legislation. The result of the report and the analysis of the legislation of, from the Sabian Institute said there is no one size for making sure that vaccine coverage works because legislation is not the only piece in the puzzle. Basically, legislation is just the background of the uh, discussion that takes place between, the, let's say, the parent, the doctor and the child. And that discussion is governed by how easy it is for the parent to get to the doctor, how easily and safely does the doctor receive the vaccines, and how much information the doctor has to give to the parent, how much trust the parent puts in the doctor, and overall how well they communicate to say, okay, if I'm going to vaccinate now, you know, follow up, look, tell me if there's, you see these, issue, these specific issues with your child. So, so the, the conclusion is really that in some countries it is uh, appropriate with mandatory vaccinations, it could help. And in other countries, it's not necessary. Would you say it would even be harmful to make it mandatory? If, if you already yes. have 96% coverage, why would you have to make it mandatory? So there's a, there's a different set of data that I looked at uh, from the WHO that said, basically, if you, if you take it one by one, countries that have mandatory vaccination tend to have a higher rate of coverage. Uh, and some vaccines it's a one to two percent difference in other vaccines uh, it's a bit more however um, the only significant difference comes in where 
there's an attack, let's say, on the vaccine on the vaccine itself, and people hesitate, like the HPV in the in the Nordics or MMR in the in, in the late 90s in the UK. The countries that do not have mandatory immunization tend to fall back, fall at that point, and then depending on how well the other st- pieces of the strategy are executed, communication trust is gained back. That's solved or not. Mm. Um, but yes, for some countries depending a lot on the historical context and the social context and how people are used to to thinking about the state, basically, they will accept vaccination as mandatory more easily and other countries uh, will not. It's it's sort of a political thing and how you think about the state and how much you trust the people in government. Uh, We're now living in a low trust government situation in most countries, so it's difficult to say that it's going to be easy to push from one to five in the in the scenarios. And my my take here is that we do need to make sure that there are are consequences. They don't need to be. It doesn't need to be mandatory. It can be recommended, but there need needs to be consequences for not vaccinating. That means simply saying the parents saying I do not want to vaccinate and I will take responsibility for this. That is something that legally has value. And if something happens to that child, the parent can be, you know, at least ask questions. Yeah. That's that, that's where I'm going to go because there's many ways to, to punish or to coerce someone to vaccinate, even adults, let's say, in specific jobs. But it's it's not always something you want to do if you can convince them without it. Is there any data supporting the idea that even if it's not mandatory, the trust and the actual information that's available to the public can help in the uptake? Um, I'm going to answer with, with it depends. Uh, but I'll, I'll <laughs> give you the example of, of, uh, of what happened in Romania when we wanted to introduce HPV vaccination. And that was in 2008 when the vaccine was relatively new and the uh, state said, okay, this is a great new vaccine, let's let's give it out. The problem was, yes, doctors were insufficiently communicated to before parents were told something. And then the parents were told, sign here if you don't want to vaccinate. And in the context of Romania, the social context of Romania, vaccination was almost mandatory in the, how people think about it. The ones that are free from the state, they think about them as mandatory. So Parents of girls aged, I think, 11, receiving a piece of paper saying, you should, you should tell us if you don't want to vaccinate, was counter to everything parents of that age remembered about taking decisions for their child. Consent was not exactly common at the time for these, these sort of things. Most parents, which, which would be about a bit older than me, had the experience of going to schools. A nurse would come in saying, it's vaccine time, line up. Mm. and everyone would line up and that's it that's how you were vaccinated nobody the parents were not asked ever so um because that wasn't well planned communication to parents and to doctors doctors came out saying i don't know what this is and i don't trust it Mm. and of course there was the usual anti-vax rhetoric coming in from outside uh, there were some cases in India, I think, some deaths which were accidental, accidental as in actual accidents with the car. But the press said, you know, there's deaths after the HPV vaccine. And it, it got so messy and so complicated and the story became so enmeshed with um, the idea of 
a sexually transmitted disease, a vaccine that is for a sexually transmitted disease given to girls which are 11, so ideally have not had sex, and this weird I should sign if I don't want it form, along with medical misinformation, it caused a complete crash of um, the program. I think several hundreds of thousands of HPV doses were thrown away, and the rate of vaccination was like 2.5% in the first year. (laughs) Not the intended result, no. No, and the next year, because they tried again, saying, okay, we're going to do proper communication, they reached 5%. Mm. So there's data that if you don't communicate properly, it's going to fail for any new vaccine, and I guess in every country, if you're going to add something in, it needs to be well communicated to the to the audience, to your intended audience. Uh, and, you know, anti-vaccine messages manage as much as possible. You did mention during the talk uh, one country as a good example of uh, communication and a success, even though it is not mandatory. Mm-hmm. It was that Finland? Finland, yes. So well, I mean, what is so special I, I about Finland? I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if it's special. It was, it was one of the countries that had the legislation unrecommended, but they have very good rates of coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's, it applies to most of the Nordic countries. I think Denmark is a bit behind. They're too close to Europe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the coverage is well enough that they're not in the risk of falling under 95% for measles. They're not in the under 85% for, for DTaP. So they're doing a good enough job in educating and making sure that everyone is comfortable with the process that they're not people they're not letting people so many people sneak through even if legislation basically allows them to many choose not to because the system is good enough and the trust in the system is good enough that when a doctor says hey you should do vaccines now all right yeah, yeah. I, I, as a Swede I can say that I think we up in the Nordic countries are trusting the authorities and we haven't had any bad governments for a very long time. So we, the police, you are not afraid of the police in Sweden unless you've done something. That they are the good guys, and in many countries it's not. You don't trust authorities. But in Sweden, and I think in Finland and Norway as well, you do. And I think that spills over. And so, so if the authority says you should vaccinate, you believe them. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's a different social context. But then if the state came in and said, now vaccination is mandatory, mm-hmm. then there will be pushback. And I think there was actually a Sweden story about the parliament saying they don't want to enforce... Yeah, but that was misinformation. We, we I, can I go into it. that. We yes, had a, yes. There was I, a myth that we debunked in an episode <laughs> some time ago. But yeah, yes. so, so the, that you know, it also circled around there saying, oh, the Swedes are against mandatory vaccination. Even in that context, it's, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. it's a good story for everyone else to yeah. push against the legislation. Right. However, we do think, and we should probably finish on this, we all agree that there something needs to be done so that it's harmonized on a European and, in fact, a worldwide level. So uh, what is happening on a European level? Is there any kind of legislation in the making or, or any kind of movement towards that? So uh, I know there are discussions, and I think there's um, an expert opinion that was sent out by the SAGE group. Um, the SAGE group is a sort of like a WHO expert advice panel, which look at what can be done. So in 12th of September, I'll be joining the European Commission, which is a new thing to say to me. Uh, <laughs> there'll be a global vaccination summit, and they will invite, um, there's a, they'll invite a lot of people who are active in organizations across 
multiple continents like the Red Cross and the, I think the RA, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, many organizations which are active across mo- um, multinational uh, systems. And the discussion, I'm guessing, is to start acting on the expert advice, which was basically proposing a similar vaccination scheme as a basic for all EU countries. And these are the two things I can remember. The second one was a European vaccine passport. So the reason for that is for the basics is because there's this difference between Western and Eastern countries. And if the European Union will subsidize some vaccines that are available in, let's say, Germany, but not available in in Romania, then everyone can be on the same level uh, as a standard of vaccines offered to all kids. And then uh, the passport was basically to support migrants and even people that would travel for holidays to say, look, this is my vaccine history. I don't need to be, I need to get a hep A vaccine because I'm traveling to, let's say, Spain, uh, because I did it. I had one. And this sort of information, if it would circulate correctly within between countries, would be very useful. And of course, let's even in the context of migration that is up from outside of Europe, we can think of, okay, we get new migrants every year, they need to follow a specific vaccination regime. So that is the context. Being in the European Commission, uh, for the people who are not aware, the European Commission is the part of the EU that provides legislation to everyone else. So I'm hoping they will, at one point, reach a consensus and formulate something that will push countries into this direction. It'll probably not be a ruling, more, more, more of a directive, for countries to implement, but it'll it'll be something, I hope. And, and you will attend this on the 12th of September? Yes, attending. That's really interesting. Exciting. So we uh, reserve the right to contact you right after that, and we will <laughs> yes. hope that you can give us a, a sure. good summary. The, of what, uh, you'll what... be interested because it's a bit of a good news story. Ethan Lindberger, who's the um, American teen who posted to Reddit saying, my mom has not vaccinated me, what do I do now? I'm going to... I'm a, an adult, I have eight, I'm 18 years old, and the whole of the internet told them what to do. And he came out as a very pro-vaccine. Got even more confused. <laughs> no, 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 he was fine. They, they were okay. Uh, so, yeah, he just told them to go to the doctor and the doctor would know what to do. But he came out as a very active pro-vaccine person growing up unvaccinated, not because he suffered, but because he realized by reading you know, scientific information that his parents were wrong. And he had multiple um, declarations to Congress, and now he's doing a bit of a tour. I'm guessing not not a tour. He was invited there, but he's doing this. He had a TED speech as well. So he's invited as an interesting sort of character to talk about vaccines and why it's important to vaccinate uh, from his perspective as a a child of an anti-vaxxer, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, he'll be there as well. But beyond him, uh, there'll be a lot of people who will hopefully push towards legislation that is my my hope at least and i'll if not i'll push them yes we're counting <laughs> we're counting on that so so that's uh, right yeah so uh, thank you very much video and we will be in touch in the near future yep thank, thank you. you thank you yes we are as we said in the interview we are going to uh, touch base with video in the f- future as well after the meeting that he's attending on the 12th of september not maybe on the 13th of September, but somewhere in during the autumn, we will catch up with him again and see what uh, this all led to and what we can expect. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it's absolutely intriguing, intriguing, and I I can't wait to hear more about it. But I think we've heard a lot on this episode, isn't that right? Yes, yes. So uh, that concludes our show. And uh, before we go, I'd I'd just like to uh, thank everyone who was there at the European Skeptics Congress, to your organizers, among them uh, especially Paul de Belder, who was the engine behind this and the the chief organizer locally on a local basis. But also it was a a, a joint effort of four different organizations. It was amazing. And uh, it was not a massive attendance but i think it was really enjoyable it was very informative the talks were really worth listening to and i can't wait to see these all these people again yeah uh, at the next convention yeah whatever it is <laughs> yeah no but it's also it's it's the speakers were fantastic the topics were not always the ones that you're used to, but very, very interesting. Yeah. And also I would like to thank all the participants, all the people in the in the audience, because there was a very productive exchange of ideas and everybody was very, very active in their participation. And uh, we had a great time. Yeah. And uh, but we forgot to mention something. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it's worth mentioning that there have been a couple of changes um, in EXO as well, in the European Council Skeptical Organizations. Ah, on the board, yes, absolutely. On the board, yeah. So uh, originally the, there were a couple of um, uh, associate board members as well, including myself. Now that status has been eliminated, and now everyone who's on the board is actual actually a board member. Yeah, we still have uh, Claire Klingenberg from the Czech Republic uh, in the driver's seat, so she is uh, still uh, the president of EXO, mm-hmm. and uh, we have uh, we have a new board member. Yes, absolutely. That's really exciting because we haven't had France active in in yeah. EXO for a long time, even though they were one of the founders once upon a time. Okay, so th- there are several French o- organizations. I think two of them are uh, a member organizations of EXO, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations. And um, one of them is AFIS. And uh, in representation of AFIS, uh, Jean-Paul Crevin joined the board. And uh, we would like to welcome him from here. And uh, looking forward to working together. And uh, we have uh, some interesting ideas. We have uh, a a couple of things that uh, we would like to get done finally, now that we've finished most of the administrative work that that we've been struggling with in the last couple of months. With that out of the way, I think we can now focus on doing some actual work. Yeah. Uh, So looking forward to that one too. So stay tuned because uh, there's more to come or more to be expected uh, from the European Council of Skeptical Organization, also known as EXO. And uh, we will run a couple of more interviews uh, recorded at the Congress, the European Skeptics Congress. And the next Congress will take place, God knows where. <laughs> there are some ideas, yes, but we can't talk ideas. about it yet. Yeah. Yes, but in that, what we can definitely expect is that it will happen in two years' time. Yes. So stay tuned for that. And of obviously... Because Europe is our main focus, we will report on the developments. On oh, that. yes. Oh, yes. But now I think we should conclude this show by saying thank you to everyone who tuned in. Uh, please keep doing so. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And uh, until next week, goodbye.
Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Oh, we missed you here. Is that a hotel room you're staying in? Yes, yes, that's, that's the story we're speaking to. <laughs> Wait, we should show you. So how, how late was last night? Well, Andras has behaved, but it's just me. I was sleeping like a baby, and then he right. comes into the room at 3.15. Jesus Christ, 3.15, oh my God. But uh, since then, he's been sleeping like a baby himself. Not me, because... He was so loud. He was snoring so loudly. Mm. Oh, but that, you, I just couldn't sleep. sleep. I just couldn't sleep. It's make it harder when you uh, exactly. when you drunk. Then you sn- yeah, you snore yeah, much yeah. more. I pledged the fifth. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> grab a microphone. We have lots of microphones. We have water right, in well, the computer. So and let's just let's just do um yeah. We wanted to get up at 6.30, but... Uh, Jesus fucking Christ. No, no, it's... Th- no, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I'm going to start. I, we, I'm recording. You're recording okay, already? Okay, I'm recording yes. too. Yeah. Do, okay, do you want me to clap? Okay, one, two, three, one, two, three. Yep, yeah, it looks good. Should we... Do Should we I clap? Need to clap or something? Yes. Let's do it. Okay, one, three. Yeah. <laughs> You're okay. listening to the. No, what? Uh, I will not say what anything. Alcoholic Anonymous. What number? <laughs> oh, one eighty-six. One eighty-six. Okay. Yeah. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions.